Hi guys, welcome back to the macro trading floor. Each Sunday, we will bring you the best macro content out there. And we promise you to become very actionable by the end of the day, suggesting one macro trade idea every week. My name is Andreas Steno. And I am Alfonso Peccadillo. Ciao, guys. Hi, Alfonso. Uh, it's been a rough week in financial markets. <laughs> I think that's safe to say. Uh, and I mean, even even the safest part of the equity market is starting to show some signs of weakness, I'd say. Um, that's one of the things that I've really noticed over the past week. We are recording today, Thursday, the uh, the 19th of, uh, of May. Uh, so just a few days after um, the reportings by, uh, for example, Walmart and Target in the US, two big retail chains. And they are both experiences, experiencing issues with, um, with keeping up margins now. So even on the very stable stuff, right? Um, okay. I think that's worth noticing, and they both took a beating uh, after the uh, reportings over the, this past week. So the question is, Andreas, whether we are trading a growth scare, uh, I guess, at this point, because you look at um, even sectors that are supposed to be more stable in the stock market and taking a beating over the last few days. You look at um, flattening in bond curves. Uh, we can talk about that. I mean, if you look at the moves we have seen in the EU uh, bond market, European bond market in general, you have seen a sharp repricing of the front end of the European bond market up, but the long end is refusing to follow to the same extent. So the curve has been flattening very aggressively. Industrial metals like copper, we have talked about that over the last few, um, few episodes especially compared to the more supply bottleneck driven commodities like agricultural commodities. Those are holding pretty okay. But if you look at industrial global demand driven commodities, at least in the short term, like copper, they are not holding that well anymore. So I'm wondering, together with even consumer staples sending some um, profit warning, some earning per share warning, are we starting to trade a growth scare year? And will it be enough for central banks to turn and be a bit more dovish than they've been over the last few weeks? Well, I guess on the margin, you could argue so, but it is simply extremely tricky to pivot as long as inflation is running so much above your target. Uh, and I also think the signals that we've gotten from central banks is that they couldn't care less about what's going on in financial markets right now. Uh, that is quite literally what they've said, uh, Powell, for example. Uh, so, I mean, the whole idea that the Fed put is close to being at the current spot price of equity markets. I, th I think you could put that idea straight into the dustbin uh, because of what inflation is doing. What you would need to see uh, for central banks to be able to pivot right now is a sharp decline in the um, monthly inflation rate, because that's what, essentially all you need to monitor right now. Uh, Yearly inflation rates, they will be um, distorted now by, by base effects when you measure against very rapid increases last year. But still, if you look at the monthly increases, they are way too high for, for central banks to, uh, to take comfort in those. So you need to see that figure going down at, at much closer levels to zero, right, before we can see a pivot. So it's, it's a binary world, I guess, for us allocators out yeah. there. Get the inflation picture right and you get right as well your asset allocation at this stage. Both spot month-to-month -month inflation numbers and inflation expectations. If you get those right, if they're going down, then obviously central banks can take some of the foot of the gas pedal when it comes to tightening so aggressively. But if they don't come down to a pace fast enough, 
then you'll have to continue suffering. And Powell interview in the Wall Street Journal two days ago, I think was very telling. Um, I, I think I even have to quote him because that was a pretty couple of pretty strong statements Andreas he went there. And he said, what we need to see is inflation coming down in a clear and convincing way. And we're going to keep pushing until we see that happening because we clearly have still a job to do when it comes to cooling down demand in the economy. Mm. Holy crap. And he's saying that when the equity market is down roughly 20% and credit spreads are, by the way, ballooning mm. in the US, especially in the fringes, like the high yield credit spreads are now at the levels we have seen above the levels we have seen at the peak in, of the 2018 sell-off that, that made the Fed pivot. And I'm getting questions like, okay, that must be it. I mean, if the credit market isn't really functioning very well anymore, then the Fed needs to step in. Well, you heard the man. Powell didn't mention at all uh, any worry that he has with, with financial conditions out there. Yeah. And to get there, we need so-called demand destruction. Uh, I also think you have a couple of Fed members deliberately uh, stating that over the past couple of weeks that we need to see demand falling back. Uh, to become uh, in sync with uh, the supply side again. Uh, and one way of showing it, uh, it was a really nice chart uh, I, I posted on Twitter the other day uh, around the retail sales report from the US is to look at um, the retail sales in running prices versus the retail sales in, sales in so-called chain prices, so inflation-adjusted prices. And you can actually see that the, let's say, total demand is kind of flatlining. So people people are buying the same stuff but they're just buying it at a higher price, which means that you, uh, in, in total numbers, get a, a, a much stronger retail sales report. Uh, and essentially, that's the issue for the Fed, that demand is actually keeping up very, very well, despite higher prices, which means on an aggregate level, this is starting to spiral out of control. Um, so they need demand to take a hit now, which is quite seriously what they're telling us that they will uh, I'm, la yeah. I'm laughing I'm laughing because it reminds me of the thumbnail I put out on the article on the macro compass which is just out today uh, the thumbnail is a guy freezing out there and it says well the Fed told me that they wanted to cool things down to cool demand down <laughs> But they didn't tell me it's going to be freaking freezing now out there. This is not cooling demand. I mean, this is a mission to slow down things. Powell was very honest in the interview as well, Andreas. I mean, he admitted that most of the supply stuff, he can't do anything about those. But what he can do is to make sure that he slows the demand hard enough. And hey, if the balance can be only brought back by slowing demand, not cooling it down by freezing demand, he will go with it. Unfortunately, that's the only option he has right now on the table. Um, even from Europe now, you're hearing some of the guys that are ah, turning tables a bit. Huh? Yeah, yeah. We, we <laughs> Let's get to that point in just a second, Alfonso, because I wanted to say something in regards to what you just said. Um, I've even seen uh, serious macroeconomists suggesting that it would actually be a good idea to manufacture a recession now, just to ensure that the wage inflation spiral doesn't get out of control. Um, and I mean, this this is something that's being said by people I respect a lot. Uh, so this is an idea that is gathering momentum that we simply need a recession now. Uh, and frankly, I also think that we will get one uh, this basically sooner than most people expect. We are maybe already in the middle of one, right? Uh, as a consequence of this very sharp rhetoric against demand. Um, so let's see where this ends, because um, interestingly, the European Central Bank is also trying to uh, ramp up the rhetoric, to say the least, uh, or at least a couple of members of the uh, board of the European Central Bank. And I noted, for example, the Dutch member, Klaas Knot, um, 
he was out saying that he wouldn't completely rule out hiking 50 basis points in one go. Uh, I, I remember when the first couple of members of the uh, board of the Federal Reserve started saying so early this year that I had a laugh. Uh, now they're laughing at me because I didn't trust that signal. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, could you imagine the same thing happening here that we are completely wrong-footed by the ECB also in this sense? I mean, can you imagine these guys are still literally running QE as we speak, Andreas? Yeah, that's that's It's the 19th of May. It is the 19th of May, and the European Central Bank is still buying under the APP program, I think 20 billion a month, top of my head. So, okay. And now you send one, okay, one of the most hawkish members of the governing council, sure, to the wire saying, ah, well, maybe we should do 50 basis point in July. I'm like, dude. I mean, you first need to stop QE and you said to everybody that you're going to stop QE in Q3. Q3 starts in the 1st of July. So even if you want to really be strict, you can stop QE in the first week of July. And then you want to tell me you want to leave one or two weeks as a space and then hike 50 basis point. That's what you're telling me. Um, okay. I, th- I think it's it's a bit of a bullard. It's a European uh, bullard move, I think, where you all raise the bar to make sure that uh, you know, you're the most hawkish and uh, screaming guy in the governing council. Uh, but Andreas, I think the funniest take of the week by a mile has been won by the guy who is behind the Ethereum coin. So uh, looking at the Terra Luna uh, disaster uh, in stablecoin land, he went out and said, well, I think that the guys who have been wiped out in the stablecoin disaster of the Terra Luna story should be insured with the FDIC up to $250,000. Yes. Like, you know, no, no, I mean, give me a break. So, um, you know how it works. So when I, when I, when I talk about the soundness of money, you ask always whose liability is my money. Yes. And so if I buy a treasury, then the, that is a liability of the government. If I own as money, a bank deposit up to 250,000 in, in, in the U S up to a hundred thousand in Europe, that's a liability of the government again, because it's government insured. Right. Um, if I run a bank deposit above that, then it's a liability of the commercial bank. If I run my money and I put them all in a stable coin, then that is liability of, not of the government, because your, your selling point is that this is a decentralized way of running money. So I'm sorry, but that doesn't work. So let's centralize risk on a decentralized stable coin. I think that sounds like a really good idea. I mean, it's okay if you have some uh, some stuff that's from time to time wobbles, but you cannot propose to centralize a, decent, a decentralized model whose highest selling point is to be decentralized in the first place. Yeah, that's not how it works. Anyway, um, I think it's time to uh, stop blabbering about macro and introduce the guest of the week. And um, this time, again, he's... Italian, or shall I say half Italian? And I'm not going to have Andreas interview me again. This time we really have a guest, and it's going to be Andreas with uh, one and a half Italians. Well, Mamma Mia, I have not only one but two Italians with me in the studio now. Uh, Alfonso Piccacello, you already know, but uh, it is also my great pleasure to introduce. Dario Perkins, who's working at TS Lombard as a managing director within the global macro department. Thank you so much for being with us, Dario. No worries. I mean, I'm only half Italian, but Alfonso is about, you know, 150% Italian. So I think 
Depending <laughs> on average. So how, how that works, how that works is that right now we have a purebred Italian, then a half Italian, half British guy who's Dario. And then we have a guy who's wearing a pink shirt, like we are in London 1990s, who's Danish and has nothing to do with Italy. I mean, Andreas, give us a break. Yeah, and uh, I'm actually going to Spain this weekend, so I guess my skin color will turn into the same color as the shirt I'm wearing within a few days from now. So at least that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Dario, I wanted to ask you something before we go into the whole macro debate. Uh, I know yeah, that you're a big pizza. No, but it's actually about your favorite football team because I know you're a fan of AC Milan, and there's a big matchup coming this yeah. weekend. Tell us about how you feel. How do I feel? Scared <laughs> is the answer to that question. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm seriously, you know, everything says that Milan should win the Scudetto on Sunday afternoon. But I don't know, man. I'm so, ever since, you know, Milan played Liverpool in the 2005 Champions League final, I have this superstition that everything is just going to go wrong in football. So it doesn't matter who we're playing against. It doesn't matter what the score is. You know, as long as, as long as, you know, we're less than three up and there's, there's more than six minutes to go. I'm convinced that the other team's going to overturn it and beat us at the end. So, you know, so, I'm, I'm scared is the answer. So Dario, we won't air the conversation on Sunday if Milan doesn't win this for that. That's what we can promise. Okay. Go to the interview now. So, um, Let's talk about your macro thesis, setting up your macro investment idea. And you drew some parallels between today and the 1970s in terms of, you know, the economic uh, setup that we have in front of us. Can you help us understand why do you think there are some parallels, actually? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to come across as this massive bear. Um, but it's really about the time horizon because, you know, you asked me to focus on the next three to six months. And I think the next three to six months just looks really ugly. I mean, if, you, if you're looking beyond that, actually, I'm, I'm quite bullish about the world. I think, yes, we'll have higher levels of inflation than we did before COVID. Uh, but I think inflation will come down to tolerable levels that central banks are prepared to tolerate. I think we'll have higher growth. I think we'll have this secular turning point in bond yields, I think is already happening. And actually, I think all of this is really welcome after that secular stagnation that we had before this crisis. But you asked me about the next three to six months. And, you know, even coming into this this year, I felt that we were going to have this really nasty recession scare just because, you know, this hasn't been a normal business cycle. This has just been this kind of messed up COVID cycle. And all of the leading indicators that we use to track the cycle tend to rely on manufacturing output and industrial production and consumer demand for goods. And all of that stuff is going to come off incredibly quickly, which is just going to give the impression that we're going into some kind of death spiral. And now you overlay that with some, you know, some big problems that I didn't anticipate in different parts of the world. So, you know, China, the lockdowns. But on top of that, you've got this kind of structural slump in China's economy where the, where the growth model is basically broken now, as far as I can see in China. So China's in big problem. Uh, Europe has basically got the biggest cost of living crisis that we've seen since the 1940s. This huge squeeze on real income. So, you know, China's contracting. Europe's probably contracting, too. And in the US, you've got this very rapid tightening in financial conditions where the Fed is trying to catch up with the fact that it, you know, it, it deliberately fallen behind the curve on interest rates. And that's going to lead to this, this cyclical downturn and things like housing and consumer goods 
And those are the things that always suggest that you're, you're going into recession. So, you know, in terms of growth, the outlook is, is pretty nasty right now. I think this kind of recession scare is going to get a lot worse than it is right now. And I think that central banks just have this, this ghost hanging over them of the 1970s because of these, there are these kind of eerie parallels with the 1970s. So firstly, the inflation that we had, nobody really saw it coming. You know, the bond market didn't see it coming. The central banks didn't see it coming. Again, you know, echoes of the 1970s, that inflation shock that we had in the 70s came as a complete surprise to the establishment. So they're already they're already seeing these ghosts and hearing these voices of you know big policy screw ups from the past. But also, you know, the energy crisis, and that's happening on top of an existing inflation problem, which is another parallel with the 1970s. In the 1960s, we'd had this very long economic expansion and there'd been no inflation that come from that. So economists started to talk about the flattening of the Phillips curve and they started to believe that inflation would never come back and unemployment could go lower and lower and lower. And then suddenly the Phillips curve became vertical. Again, you know, there's echoes of that right now. But I think the thing that really haunts central bankers is just that they, you know, they fell behind the curve in a really big way in the 1970s. And when they look back on the 1970s, they just see these horrendous policy errors. And the whole point of independent central banks was to ensure that the 1970s couldn't come back again. So the fact that we're seeing these kind of echoes and this, these kind of familiar themes that we had 40 years ago, I think is a, is a real problem for central banks because this is their whole reason for being. You know, this, is the, this is the reason they exist. And so if there is even the mildest threat of, of you know, some kind of stagflationary 1970s environment, then central banks have to be very aggressive. And that's what we're seeing. You know, we're, we're basically in this race from all of these central banks, this kind of reverse currency war, which is effectively a race to see who can crash their economy first by raising interest rates as, a, as aggressively as they can. So I think, you know, the issue here is that we have this very sharp deterioration in the global economy. But the inflation that we have isn't going to go away because of that. And I think that, you know, the problem here for investors is that you're talking about a, a change in the nature of inflation. So for the last 20 years, we always had pro-cyclical inflation. So when the economy was doing better, inflation would pick up. When the economy turned down, inflation would follow. And right now we're in this counter-cyclical inflationary environment, which is, you know, stagflation. And when that happens, it means that your basic... Uh, you know, you, you, inflation has gone from pro-cyclical to counter-cyclical. So what's happened is your bond equity correlation has flipped the other way. It's gone from negative to positive. And we see that, you know, in the behavior of financial markets over the last three months. So put, up, put all that together and you've got this really horrible environment. You've got growth deteriorating. You've got inflation sticky. You've got central banks spooked by this kind of 1970s ghost. And you've got, you know, bonds not doing what they're supposed to do because of the way that central banks are behaving. So I think that is a really toxic mix. And I think we, we're just in the kind of early stages of this. I think that's going to get worse before it gets better. I'm happy that you got the, got the chance to uh, to say initially that you're a positive long-term area because otherwise I would probably have chosen to hang myself after this introduction to your macro thesis. But uh, I, I wanted to ask you, I, I know that you're an avid follower of, of central banks as well. Uh, let's assume that we get a recession within the next six to nine months, uh, a, a rather grave one. Do you think that uh, will change the reaction function that we currently see from central banks in any way or will they keep... Uh, focusing on inflation in such a scenario? 
Well, I don't, I, you know, I don't know why we're looking out nine months because this is happening now. I mean, you know, the, the growth data is getting materially wor- worse and it's happening very quickly and it's happening everywhere. And I think the U.S. is about to join this kind of downturn. And certainly some of the data that we're getting right now suggests that the U.S. economy is deteriorating quite rapidly. Uh, I think that, um, you know, the, the problem that central banks have is that the, the the recession that we're getting, particularly in Europe and, and to the U.S. to some degree, is actually being caused by the inflation. So it's this massive squeeze on real incomes. And what they're worried about is that the tightness in the labor market is going to cause wages to start to go up. So then you effectively replace one cost pressure, which is, you know, energy. It's, you know, all of the kind of COVID distortions of the last two years with another cost pressure, which is wages. And then inflation becomes much stickier. And so I think uh, it's very difficult for central banks to react to what's happening right now. And I think their response is going to be incredibly slow to this. So my, my guess is that, you know, if there is a kind of recession, it will be quite short lived and central banks probably won't have time to react to it. And that, that exactly, you know, that's what happened in the 1970s, because in the 1970s, you get three recessions in the U.S. They're all quite short term, you know, that they don't turn into this kind of gut wrenching 2008 style dynamic. They come from real incomes being very squeezed. But because the labor market stays quite resilient and, and nominal wages stay quite resilient, inflation then recovers, you know, it bounces back quite quickly. And it always remains at levels that central banks are not prepared to tolerate. So, you know, I, I don't see an immediate response to this, unfortunate, which just, unfortunately, which just adds to the kind of cocktail of doom for financial market. But Dario, what do you make of the story that I'm hearing very often that the consumer and the private sector balance sheets are very healthy? I read this all the time. They're very, very healthy. And there's certain metrics. They were a lot healthier three months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the pace of change is important. But what do you make of the overall assessment that the private sector can actually handle these tightening in financial conditions without, you know, leading us into a recession in the first place? I, I think that right now, the downturn that we have is not coming from monetary policy. It's coming from very high inflation, squeezing people's real incomes. And that's causing output to go down because people can naturally afford to buy less. It's, it's like a huge tax on consumers. Um, so it's not coming from monetary policy. If it was coming purely from monetary policy, I think I would agree with that, that um, you know, we can take some comfort from the fact that balance sheets are so strong. Um, you know, this isn't going to be like 2008. We're not going to have that kind of banking crisis and that destruction of wealth. Um, but um, you know, I, I think when I look at I mean, I did some work on debt servicing across different countries. And obviously, as central banks start to tighten policy, there are some economies that probably blow up very quickly. So the one that really stands out is Canada, because Canada has got more debt than anybody else. It's been accumulating debt faster than anybody else. And everyone and you've had this 40 percent rise in Canadian house prices over the past two years, which is just monumental. And everyone's been taking out variable rate mortgages. So they're immediately tied to interest rates going up. I think that when you look at the US, um, when, when, I, when I did my work, it was basically when you got to kind of three and a half, three point six on the 10 year yield. That's when you started to get quite a serious squeeze on balance sheets. And it was coming mainly through the corporate sector because the corporate sector in the US has taken on a lot of debt over the last decade, whereas we've had a lot of deleveraging from households. And obviously, households are also tied to long term rates because when rates go down, they remortgage. And so you don't get an immediate hit to, to um, household balance sheets. 
but the hit comes in terms of corporate balance sheets. And I don't think we're at the level yet where the, the interest rate increases that we had are actually causing a monetary recession. I think this is a very different type of downturn at this point. We've seen nominal bond yields rising quite rapidly in uh, this scenario over the past two, three, four months. But how do you view real interest rates in this scenario? So inflation-adjusted bond yields, will they go up or down? Uh, well, I think they go up. And I, I think we're, you know, we're in a world where uh, real yields are going to trend higher. Um, you know, that was my optimistic take at the start of this, this conversation, is that I think that neutral interest rate is headed higher, that neutral real interest rate. Uh, and I think that's going to be a trend of the next decade, you know, and if you think about what, you know, what caused secular stagnation, it was basically too much saving, not a lot, not enough investment. And over the next decade, I think that's going to change, we're going to have a much better policy mix. So we're going to have more fiscal, you know, fiscal policy doing more of the work in trying to stimulate the economy, monetary policy becoming tighter. So we're going to have a much better policy mix between those two. But also, I think we're going to get massive investment in green technologies, both public and private. And also, I think that there's a kind of underlying secular story in housing as well, which is that if we're all now working from home more regularly, we can we can afford to live further away from the office because we're not going to be commuting every day. And so we're bringing in new parts of the housing market. And I think that, you know, that, that effectively brings in a new first time buyer for, for housing. So I think that there are these secular stories that are, that are improving, that are getting better. And over the next decade, you know, we'll, we'll see those start to play out. So there's going to be a, a kind of drift higher in inflation, a drift higher in real interest rates. But, you know, what's happened over the last few months is just an exaggerated version of that, because, you know, the, the, the interest rates, the interest rate, you know, we basically people forget what this is. You know, this isn't a business cycle. We we closed our economies and we reopened our economies. You know, there was no recession. There was no recovery. It was close down your economy and reopen it. And we turned monetary policy to absolute maximum, you know, full stimulus. And now we're turning it back to neutral in one go. And when I was joking a few months ago about the dovish monster rate hike, you remember that when I said they should just raise interest rates 250 basis points in one go, and then they could be quite dovish about that and say, look, we're back to neutral. Um, yeah. It wasn't that's what I thought they would do. It's because I was trying to illustrate a point. And the point was, you know, this isn't a normal monetary tightening process. This is, you know, we turn the economy back on. Now let's turn monetary policy straight back to neutral. And that's what these central banks are trying to do. They're trying to get back to neutral as quickly as they possibly can, because their economy is basically back to where it was before this crisis. And it's happened in a matter of months rather than years. Mm -hmm. Daria, look, I'm wearing a shirt for people listening to the podcast that um, says you can't fight demographics. And now you come here and you depict this fantastic, amazing, higher real rates, booming next decade well booming i'm paraphrasing you here a bit but you know you were pretty rosy over the medium term um how do you fight back against the fact that the labor supply in china for example as andres has also shown a couple of times supposed to go down by about i think from 1 billion roughly where we are now to 700 million over the next 20 years that's like a 30 percent decline in the labor supply in china and in every developed economy we're going to see the same you know the labor supply is going to shrink so how will we able to engineer long-term structural growth that is higher than the one we have, you know, we have delivered over the last few decades? Because, you know, contrary to what your T-shirt says, I don't think demographics is everything. 
So, you know, demographics is a big part of the story. So if you think about um, the kind of post-World War II environment, uh, particularly the 1960s and 1970s, you had this young militant workforce. And I, I think that's why you had, uh, you know, very high real interest rates. You had very high inflation. Uh, but, you know, I don't think inflation is really about just demographics. Uh, I think it's about power. And I think, you know, what happened in the 1970s is that we had an economy that was very geared towards uh, worker power. So we had yeah. strong trade unions. We had wage indexation. We had a young militant workforce. There's your demographics for you. Um, and, you know, because of the very high inflation that we ended up with, we then spent 40 years destroying that economy and breaking those institutions. So we got rid of trade unions, we outlawed wage indexation, uh, we crushed worker power, you know, we used globalization, we used technology, yeah. we opened up our product markets, uh, we opened up the world. Um, and, you know, that was 40 years of crushing worker power that gave us lower inflation, lower interest rates. I think that's the, the turning point now that we're starting to get a rebalance in this kind of underlying balance of power between workers and companies. And it's going to come from deglobalization. Uh, it's going to come from, uh, you know, big investments in, in the real economy. You know, I've been calling the next decade the tangible 20s because I think it's very different from the intangible 2010s. You know, it's a very different type of environment. And yes, you know, demographics is, is a drag, as you say. Uh, but if you look at the US, you're actually at this, this kind of this kind of demographic hump, you know, with the number of people moving into the 30s and 40s, which is very bullish for housing in the US. Uh, Europe, you know, Japan look, look, you know, more difficult and China, as you say. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the balance of power is shifting. And I think deglobalization is a force that could overwhelm the fact that, you know, we have uh, an aging population. Before we move uh, to the short-term investment outlook and your macro trade idea for the next three to six months. I would like to pick your brain a bit on how to asset allocate into the tangible 20s because this is a change of scenery macro-wise, but how should a long-term investor think about this macro environment from an investment perspective? So I think it's about getting exposure to the real economy. So you know, we know that commodities are going to be in short supply. So there's a, there's a kind of secular story. I, I dare to use the term super cycle, but there's a secular story in commodities. But again, you know, we've got all this noise from Russia and uh, COVID. And, and so, you know, that's not the immediate story, but there is a secular story coming through for commodities. Uh, I think it's about value. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, stock pickers love me because I think this is all about value. Because if you look at the the performance of value versus growth, and you can get data, you know, from Farmer and French going back to the 1940s on this, um, the 2010s period is really bizarre. You know, that constant outperformance of growth versus value is really is really concentrated to that period, to that decade. You know, it didn't happen at any time before that. And I don't think it's going to happen in the future. I think we're now in a world where we're going to get this secular outperformance of, of value over growth. And so it's a very different type of environment for financial markets. It's a secular increase in interest rates. I think real returns in bonds are going to be horrendous over the next decade. I don't think we're going to have 1970s style wage price spirals, but we're going to have plenty more periods of transitory inflation, you know, big spikes in inflation. 
inflation is going to become much more volatile than we've been used to. And central banks won't always be following that inflation with interest rates. So you're going to get periods that will look like financial repression, which I guess you could say we've been in already over the last six months. Uh, so I think that's going to give you horrible returns in uh, in in bonds, real returns. Uh, I think, you know, value investors probably do all right out of that. Uh, we've already had a massive, you know, derating in tech and all of those long duration assets. Um, you know, that's basically the COVID bubble that is, that is gone. Uh, but I think there's a secular story there as well. That this is going to continue. Well, Dario, it's 20 minutes in. And we had a, I think, a great uh, long-term macro framework discussion, which we also dub as macro blabbering on the macro trading floor. We had some I fun with it. All of- <laughs> <laughs> we had some fun, really informative. Uh, it's time now to focus on the six months horizon actionable macro trade investment for our audience. And there, I think you have a pretty straightforward idea. So let's, uh, let's bring it on the table. Let's talk about that for a second. Well, I'm a straightforward kind of guy, you know, anything else is too smart for me. So I think it's a, it's about short equities, US equities. I think that we've had, you know, we, we basically had a COVID bubble um, that was similar to tulip mania. You know, I remember writing about this 12, 18 months ago um, that, you know, we had a period where, uh, you know, people had lots of cash. Uh, they were sitting at home, they were bored. Uh, and so they were punting around in retail stocks. They were punting around in cryptocurrencies. Central banks were promising to keep interest rates at zero forever. Um, you know, I'm not a big, I'm not a big believer in QE. So I don't think QE was a big part of, of the, you know, the asset price bubble that we've had. But certainly the expectation was that we'd have zero rates forever. Uh, and that led to this kind of massive uh, re-rating of uh, long-term, you know, long-term, uh, long-duration stocks. And all of that has ended. And that's, you know, that's deflated. And it's deflated in such a way that I think central banks will be pretty happy with so far. Uh, but what we haven't had, so we've gone back to, uh, you know, PE ratios that were similar to where they were before that bubble started to inflate. But what nobody has adjusted is their expectations for earnings. And when I look at earnings expectations for the rest of this year, which I think are a 15% increase in earnings in the US, I mean, that just looks absolutely insane to me. So I think that those earnings expectations, at this point, I think we'd get minus 15 rather than plus 15 on US earnings. So I think that, you know, there is still a big part of this adjustment that still has to happen. So I think that we still have probably another 18, 20% to go in terms of the decline in US equities. And, you know, that would, that would take us back to, to where we were, I think. At which point will the Fed step in and do something about the situation? I guess we are in another environment when it comes to the Fed put compared to two, three years ago. Well, we're already in a different environment because by now, you know, if we were still, if we had inflation at 2% or below 2%, which is what we had in 2018, 2019, the Fed probably would have cut interest rates by now or already, you know, restarted QE. So we can already see that this is a very different environment. And, you know, I think it depends on how quickly inflation comes down rather than just on the value of the stock market. You know, the other side of this is that, you know, at the, at the latest press conference, Powell basically said, you know, we've had a lot of bad luck over the last few years, a lot of stuff that we haven't been able to control, like COVID and lockdowns and fiscal stimulus and supply disruption and China and now, you know, the war in Europe. And he said, but what we need to look at is, is the kind of underlying imbalance that now exists in the US labor market. 
And that is a job for us. You know, if we've got too much labor demand relative to labor supply, then that's something that we can we can address. We can raise interest rates and try to squeeze labor demand. But the big issue here is that it's labor supply that has disappeared over the last two years. And I think a big part of that is people retiring. And a big part of that is this wealth effect from the fact that the stock market has been so strong. So actually, it's, it's actually quite helpful for the Fed to see this bubble deflate because it might actually force people to get jobs again and, and do some work. And that's probably their best chance of getting a soft landing because, you know, the, the idea that you can uh, destroy job openings in the U.S. without causing unemployment to go up, which is what Powell said, you know, two weeks ago, that's never going to happen. You know, the best chance is that labor supply comes back and the mismatch closes in that, in that regard. So I think we're, we're a long way from the Fed, you know, freaking out about what they're seeing. As I said, you know, if you're a Fed official, you look at that chart of the S&P 500, you see this massive, you know, upsurge in 2020, 2021. And we basically corrected that. So, you know, why would you worry, you know, from where we are now? Uh, Dario, one question we always ask to every guest on the macro trading floor is, what can go wrong with your trade? So what's, you know, if your base case is wrong, um, what could that be the reason why? So I think it's about this, the, the kind of fake business cycle that we've been in. So, you know, if these, the kind of bullwhip effect that we had over the last two years that caused a lot of the inflation that we've had. Uh, so, uh, you know, the kind of supply disruption globally, uh, the mismanagement of inventories, um, if that stuff shifts into reverse quite quickly and global goods prices suddenly tanks, which it could do, um, you know, we, we've been puzzled by the continued strength of U.S. demand for goods over the last couple of years. That could reverse very quickly. I mean, you know, goods demand is a flow and that flow could just disappear if people shift back into into services, which they should be doing. If that happens, uh, then the inflation outlook could change very dramatically, very quickly. And then the Fed has a free pass to you know to come back in and actually say well we're back to neutral and that's probably job done well dario i have to say that um it's almost time now to cut the number of italians in the room from two or one and a half back to one it's been a, a Which one great... of us is getting... <laughs> it's it's been a pleasure to have you here on the macro training floor but before actually we, we leave you i want to give you a chance to make sure um, to tell people that are listening to this interview, where can they find about you? I mean, where can they read more of your research and find more about you? So obviously the best place is Twitter. So it's at Dario Perkins. Um, I write a blog. Uh, I frequently put it onto Twitter, um, you know, constantly take the piss out of central bankers, which is one of my hobbies. Um, but I work for TS Lombard, which is a macro consultancy. Uh, I do a lot of kind of long-term thematic stuff, but obviously, you know, short-term three to six months as well, as, you, as you've discovered. Uh, and so, you know, you can, you can surf me on the internet. Um, you know, we, we provide a service. It's mostly for institutional investors. Um, but, you know, probably Twitter is the best place to start. Dario, thanks again. I can only recommend your blog and your work at TS Lombard as well. It's been a pleasure to have you here and uh, we'll call you back in six months to see how your short is doing on the SMB. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks Joe. 
So it's time to discuss the trade idea put forward by uh, by Dario Perkins uh, and Alfonso. What he suggested was basically to be short U.S. equities uh, and very straightforward, actually, with a uh, short position on the S&P 500 with a uh, target of uh, 3,200 on the index level. Uh, we are roughly at uh, 3,820 uh, as we as we speak today on the 19th of, of May. The time horizon is around three to six months. So this is based on a story of demand destruction happening right as we record and speak. Uh, And frankly speaking, um, I think this fluctuates kind of well with what we debated uh, throughout the podcast today that we have increasing signals from the economy that demand destruction is needed and that it will happen. Yeah, well, Andreas, uh, actually, Dario falls into my arms straight away because my trades are public, the tactical ones with a similar time horizon, three to six months. And I am, I have been uh, short the S&P 500 since 4,400 and I am still short at these levels. So I do agree with the trade. The rationale behind the trade is basically that, as we discussed as well in the intro and a bit together with Dario, um, the ability for central banks to provide a floor for valuations is big times watered down compared to the whole period post the great financial crisis, even periods where things were getting more wobbly like the end of 2018 because inflation expectation back then were 2%, realized inflation was 2%, and today you have inflation expectation at 3.5% over the next five years in the US and also in Europe, and you have realized inflation between 6 and 8% in all developed markets. That is obviously a situation where the incentive scheme for a central bank changes completely. And as they can't influence supply, the only thing they can do is influence demand. And they've been very clear about the fact they want to cool demand down by a reverse wealth effect as well, which includes tightening financial conditions. And equities tend to be the largest component of any financial condition index. Basically, central banks are telling us to be short. So who am I not to be short? <laughs> yeah, you don't want to lean against the wind, uh, and you, in particular, don't want to pee against the wind. I've tried that once in my life. So, um, I mean, uh, I, I, I guess you know where I'm headed here. Uh, don't fight the Fed when they really want something done, and they want something done on this demand side. Yeah, I am sure. I'm, I'm pretty convinced about that too. Uh, the recapping a bit. It's the 19th of May. Dario Perkins uh, wants to be short the S&P 500. You can do that in a very simple way if you wanted to replicate the trade. Uh, amongst the many ETFs, there is a, a ProShares short S&P ETF, uh, which basically, if you buy, delivers you a short position on the underlying, which is the S&P. It's tradable both in the US and in Europe. Uh, I think the ticker is SH as the ETF. Very simple trade uh, to replicate in case you ever wanted um, from a retail perspective even. Time horizon is six months and Dario is targeting a 20% decline of S&P going forward. Ouch. Not bad. Yeah. Also because it comes on top of an already 20% decline. So it's it's really like uh, ballistic yeah. in terms of a target, but you might be right. Yeah, and I actually had an agreement with a Swedish TV host uh, that as soon as we had a 20% drawdown, we would need to shave our beards, both of us. So that's why I look a bit different this week. And uh, I can tell you that the Swedish TV host, he looks extremely diff- different because he's he's usually carrying a huge beard. So, um, yeah, so here we are. I am never going to sign up for any of these bets because I have no hair already. If you want me to shave as well, then... 
it, I'm going to look like a baby, you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, but Andreas, together with the discussion on the SMB and before we move as a recap and as, uh, of other trades as well that have been discussed so far on the macro trading floor and provide our audience with a news. So we're, we're working on a sheet to track them all. Uh, why don't we discuss for a few minutes the structural uh, macro tangible 20s idea that Dario has? I mean, that is beyond... Uh, the trade idea of being short SMP, but what do you make of that? I don't buy it, to just um, put it out there. Uh, the reason being that I'm not sure that the debt load in Western economies can cope with such a scenario. Um, and it, if we quite frankly look at the developments since uh, the COVID crisis, then we have a much weaker labor force. I think Darius' cases that they might be uh, tempted back into the labor force, those boomers were left, uh, if wealth effects are cancelled, so to speak. I guess there is a decent chance of that. Um, but in any case, if we don't get that labor supply back in force, then I'm basically not really sure where this structural growth will come from because um, structural growth almost solely requires a strong labor force development because otherwise you're not really able to, to get strong structural growth, right? Uh, and as you rightly said also during the interview and, and, and asked Dario for feedback on, well, if you look at the demographics of Europe and China in particular, then the labor force is not going to increase, almost not uh, given how, uh, I mean, no matter how many boomers you attempt to go back uh, into the labor force, it, it won't increase that labor force as a consequence of demographics. And, uh, you're right, because even if these guys come back to the labor force, they come back temporarily, because if you were a boomer who was able to retire, you were probably 55 to 60 years old, something like that. And so even if you have to come back to the labor market, which means you really have to make, make, have messed up your calculations on your wealth effect, but okay. And you, it means you have cashed in nothing. You, okay, but it's, it's a lot of statements, okay. Then you, when you have to come back, you'll come back for a few years till you can retire again. It doesn't solve the structural demographics issues I think we have uh, ahead of us. What he said, though, regarding um, a better allocation of capital, that's what he was talking about at the end of the day when he said that fiscal can take over and monetary can be less accommodative and therefore distorting less the allocation of capital. What might discuss the merits of that? But again, fiscal stimulus always means that unless you really are delivering very productive investments, you will be increasing your debt load at the end of the day. And an increase of debt load is, is obviously a drag on long-term growth. Yeah. And I mean, I, I basically see no signs of productive investments through COVID. Uh, it, it may be a different question now that we're trying to uh, solve the climate issue. Um, but at, at least during 2020 and 2021, it was very uh, hard to find any good uh, signs from the, um, the usage of, of, um, of the fiscal stimulus, I'd say. Uh, it wasn't like productive investments. What do you mean? Buying GameStop, buying uh, AMC. What do you mean, Andreas? YOLO calls. What are you talking about? Productive investments. Anyway, uh, now, time to talk about the trades, shall we? The ones that have been proposed so far by all the guests, including ourselves. We have stuck our neck out last week. So shall we uh, recap first the performance of the trades and then have a quick chat about those, Andreas? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's time to launch the reverse Steno ETF. <laughs> 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 a, a, a few guys uh, basically poked me last weekend and said, well, now you're finally saying a long dollar via the um, UUP ETF. And I mean, the two immediate trading days after that, the dollar started getting a beating. Um, so it, it's not off to the best of starts. I think I'm down 1.8% uh, by the time we record on, on that long dollar position. But I actually uh, uh, hold on to it. And um, uh, my stop is, is around 3.25% from, from the uh, entry level. Reason being that if we get true demand destruction and if we get a recessionary scenario, then we should expect the dollar to gain just from the uh, need of dollar liquidity from a lot of indebted countries around the world uh, with dollar debt. Uh, and uh, the sources of liquidity uh, in, in dollar uh, are, are, are basically shrinking right now, uh, as I see it with global trade slowing uh, and the Federal Reserve starting to actually withdraw dollars from the financial system. Uh, so in that sense, I think from a structural perspective, this trade holds true still. Yeah. But it's not off to the best of starts. No, I have sympathy as well for the long dollar trade, Andreas. But um, looking at the, the guests that have been on, including us, yeah. we had basically five trade ideas. Four are not in the money, just to show as well how difficult it has been in this environment to find profitable investment ideas. It's true that those have a six months horizon on average. That's what we ask our, our guests the whole time to think about. And we are looking at a month, three weeks on average uh, as a return so far. So there is time before those can unfold, but four out of five are out of the money. But don't be so humble, Alfonso. Who's behind the trade being in the money right now? Do you want to reveal it yourself? <laughs> yes, I'm the lucky guy. I'm the lucky guy. So uh, Italian government bond against German government bond, the BTP boon spread is about nine basis points wider. Since I proposed to trade, the trade carries pretty bad. So if I look at the total return, it's less than that. It's about eight and a half basis point. It's not massive, also in standard deviation terms, but it's going the right direction. All the other trades we had, uh, we had Linol then with the AMLP ETF, which is uh, unfortunately down 6%. Since then, uh, we had the long Brazilian real trade against the dollar from Jim Leitner, which is also down, carry included about three, three and a half percent. Um, and then uh, Mike Green with his call spread um, on the euro dollar December 2022, which is basically a long two-year bond trade approximately as a, as a delta of the option. Uh, that is roughly unchanged in terms of total return. But Andreas, instead of talking about roughly, we should maybe anticipate to the audience that we are working on a tool that will track in a total return basis all these trades. Everybody will be standardized, will be looking at a six-month horizon. We will look at the total return of the trade against the risk and the volatility realized of the trade. We're going to rank everybody for risk-adjusted performance during the time horizon. And at the end of the sixth month, everybody will have a cutoff, like a European option structure, basically. And we're going to declare the winner and also tease everybody on Twitter, including teasing ourselves if we are wrong. Uh, at least you're off to a better start than um, than some other host of this podcast um, who I'm not going to name right now. Well, Andreas, um, I should say that, um, again, we should thank the audience for the huge support we're receiving. Uh, the latest episode uh, is at almost at 50,000 unique downloads across uh, platforms. It's really massive for only uh, being the fourth episode of the, of the macro trading for 
you guys are the best. So thanks for the support again. And uh, uh, what can I say? Yeah. And if you want to ensure that our growth numbers, they continue, then um, please help us rate the podcast in, in podcast apps, share it with your network uh, and tell people to listen to it, uh, because then we will make sure that you will continue to get this daily, sorry, weekly podcast for free every Sunday going forward. And do not put pineapple on pizza or I'm going to hate you anyway. And my grandma as well is going to be very upset with you. That's very important. <laughs> Talk to you next Sunday, guys. Yeah. Thanks for now.